0: All right. Uh, in looking over the questions that people are asking, uh, I noticed that a couple of the questions are dealing with the gospel. Uh, and I absolutely love it because that's my forte, right? That, that is what I hone in on the most. That is what I am the most excited about. So um, tonight, I'm going to be sharing how to give. A strong biblical gospel message. And this morning, I'm gonna share with you how not to give a strong biblical gospel message. And what do I mean by that? I'm gonna share with you something where I want you, if you do take notes, to take notes, because I will step on the toes of a lot of modern day evangelists and pastors and teachers, and it's not my intent to bring offense. But I know the word God brings offense. And what I want you to do is I want you to be like the Apostle Paul, where he told of those in Thessalonica that they were more noble-minded than those in Berea, that Berea? Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. That's right. I like this, right? See, we're students. Because they searched the scriptures daily to see if the things that they were taught were true. So we need to be like the good Bereans. So I'm going to give you scripture, and you're going to have some homework. Because I know, I realize that some of the things that I'm going to share with you is going to butt against things that you have learned through the years as a Christian. But I want you to bear with me and uh, form that opinion Uh, at the end. What I want to come up against is a fictitious teaching where you hear people say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How many people have heard that, that God has a wonderful plan for your life? All right. I've heard that as well. I want to refute that. So you need to be like those Bereans and search the scriptures that I'm going to give to you to see if it is true. Fair enough? Fair enough. And if I'm not accurate in what I'm saying, will you love me enough to come and talk to me in a very respectful way? But I think that you're actually going to agree with me as we go through our text here this morning. Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we will start in verse 23. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, and in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. This is the Apostle Paul's testimony after he became a Christian. Journey with me, if you would, on a little thought experiment. Let's go back in time. The date is September tenth, two 2001. It is the day before the attack on the World Trade Center. And you've been asked to speak to 100 people on the 100th floor of Tower 1, one of the two towers that went down in the attack that day. You've been given a message. And that message is the gospel. And you have been commanded to share the gospel with these 100 people. And you have that hindsight that you know, for whatever reason, you know that they're going to die the next day. Let's just suppose for a moment yet you are to share the gospel with them, would you tell these people, knowing that they're about ready to die the next day, that God has a wonderful plan for their life? Or would you switch it up a little bit? Because you know in less than 24 hours, some people are going to jump out of the windows and fall on the unforgiving sidewalks there in New York. Others who remain within the building will be so dismingled that their bodies will never be found? Would you tell them God has a wonderful plan for your life? Or would you change your message? Would you switch it up? I dare to say if you knew these people were about ready to die in such a horrific way, you would not tell them that God has a wonderful plan for their life. But here's the rub. I thought the gospel doesn't change. I thought the gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I would dare to say, and I think you would agree with me, that the gospel truly is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And anything added to that would not truly be a portion of the gospel message. Now, does God have a plan? for people's lives. Yes. Is it wonderful? Well, you can decide for that. I will dare to say that God would say yes it is wonderful because he comes up with the plan. And he has chosen us and created us to walk in a work which he has created before time. Ephesians 2:10. I love that. We are his workmanship. That's the Greek word poema where we get the English word poem. That we, as Christians, are the symphony of his praise, the trophy of his grace, the expression of his heart on display forever, where the angels are left scratching their heads. Well, on that day, 9-11 took place, 2,606 people died. That's terrible. Well, what is the message? We're going to go into greater detail tonight. But I want to build my case here today with you so that we don't share a message that is unbiblical. Let's be challenged by the text. Brother will deliver brother to death, and his father his child, and that children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and that all men will hate you because of my namesake. Can you imagine that? People hating you just because you claim to be a Christian. That's it. In fact, Scripture tells us all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Notice it doesn't say all those who are living godly. If you even desire to live godly, you're going to suffer persecution. That is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. So what are the promises that await you if you become a Christian? Are you ready? This is what you've signed up for. And if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, this is what you're going to sign up for. Trials, tribulation, persecution, temptation, and sufferings. In fact, Scripture says that some are appointed to suffer for his namesake. Preordained to suffer for his namesake. Oh, by the way, you won't just have trials, tribulation, persecution, temptation, and sufferings your name will be written in heaven. And what does that do? That causes us to not be moved when the flight gets bumpy. When the tumultuous storm comes our way, it's only the Christian that can mock the storm because we know the weatherman. We know he who is in control. So I'm not moved. I'm not moved. I'm not... Shaken, My foundation is secure because Jesus Christ himself is my rock, my fortress, my stronghold, my strong tower. So the Apostle Paul, Scripture says that Christ came to give us an abundant life. And I appreciate the way the, our worship leader shared earlier today. He said, came to give us a full life. Because that is a proper definition of that scripture in John 10.10. Because doesn't scripture say that I came to give you life and that life more abundantly? And we grab a hold of that text. And remember, we are fallen people living in a fallen world, making fallen decisions, and we interpret things according to, and here's a very big word, epistemology. It's the study of knowledge. The theory of knowledge. Everything you believe is based upon videos you've watched, people you've talked to, articles you've read, audios you've listened to, I'm the same way. Everything that I believe is based upon those five things. Epistemology. We all believe certain things about the world's order. And some people say, well, I'm going to become a Mormon because of that, or an atheist, or whatever it may be. And when we see in John's gospel, John chapter 10, that Christ came to give us an abundant life, that word abundant, it means full. Not necessarily a happy life. Look at the Apostle Paul. Remember our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundantly, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, journeys often in perils of waters and perils of robbers, it goes on in weariness and toil, in hunger and thirsting and fastings and in cold and in nakedness. Do you remember what the first words, Saul of Tarsus, before he became the apostle Paul, what were the first words that he heard? When the prophet went to him, remember, he's riding along, he's going into Damascus, he's knocked off his high horse, and he hears some noise, and he has this vision. And the words to him were, go tell Saul, what a wonderful plan I have for his life. Is that what it says? No. It says, go tell Saul what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's different than God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I'm going to tell you, the plan that God has for me is way more wonderful than anything I'm going to come up with. I, uh, right after 9-11, uh, there was a, a good number of us from a school where I was the dean of. Uh, we traveled to New York. I wasn't part of the group. But we traveled to New York, went right outside where the two towers went down, as close as they could go. And they started to ask the different people that were there, and some of them were Christians. When you hear that God has a wonderful plan for your life, what do you think of? Let me share with you some of their responses. One person said, a wonderful thing would be that I never have to work. Now, we know scripture says, unless a man works, he shall not eat. But remember, we have to put our minds in the place of the lost. When they hear the words, God has a wonderful plan for your life, they think that God is better than MTV. Let me give Christ a try and see if his flavor is better than Buddha's. And they don't come with repentance. They don't come seeking righteousness. They come seeking happiness. And it doesn't matter how happy a sinner is on the day of judgment. Without the righteousness of Christ, they will perish. Another person said, well, a wonderful plan for me would be to have a nice car, man, a Ferrari or a Porsche with nice rims. Another, total bliss and happiness is what I think of when I think of happiness. Well, you know what I think of? I think of I want to graduate from school and I want to make the money that I plan on making. Or, one person said, I want all my family to stay healthy. And the last person we talked to, I want all of my wishes to come true. Wow. That is what is in the mind of somebody, a non-Christian, when we say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They will experiment as opposed to seeking after Christ while he may be found, seeking after to have their sins forgiven. How many times have you heard, you know what, my neighbor, he'll never come to Christ. He's he's so happy already. He's got a boat. He, He has a a vacation house, he has a white picket fence, and we think that happiness has something to do with it, when in reality, it's about righteousness. David Garland, he said, in explaining the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul, listen to what he said. Paul subtly notifies his readers that proclaiming the mystery of Christ crucified is more likely to open the door to a prison cell for them instead of the door to financial and social success. How did the apostle, all the different apostles die? You ever think about that? I mean, we know how Jesus died, but how did the rest die? Was it all of old age? Did they die quietly in their sleep? No, they didn't. Philip was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Peter was crucified. Upside down. Matthew was beheaded. Barnabas was burned to death. Mark was dragged to death. James the Less was clubbed to death. Paul was beheaded. Thomas was speared to death. Luke was hanged, and it didn't stop there. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death. At the hands of who? The Apostle Paul. He was there, given his approval of the way Stephen was to die. I named my first son after him. His middle name is Stephen. But let me share with you how the gospel works. When the Apostle Paul died, he entered into heaven at the triumphant praise of those whom he had martyred. Because that's how the gospel works. Listen, life is quick. It's not about you. God is not concerned with your happiness, though he gives us a joy that is inexpressible, and it's full of glory, and it's outside of our circumstances. It has nothing to do with our situation. Ask the person who lost a child. How can you be so focused during a time like this? I echo the words of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. God alone is good, and he does all things well just look at our lives. And he desires to give good gifts to his children. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Hebrews chapter 11, that tells us of those who loved God, and yet they were stoned to death and sawn in half, and they were tempted and slain with the sword. This is the Hall of Faith chapter. There's no casual reading of the Fox's Book of Martyrs. As you begin to realize that more Christians were martyred in this century, than all the previous centuries combined. You look at recently, 21 Coptic Christians were beheaded on the beaches because they claimed the name of Christ. Not even if they were Christians. That's not even my point. But they claimed to be a Christian, and they gave the ultimate price, and they paid with their life's blood. Very, very interesting. In the last 200 years, an estimated 43 million Christians were martyred. And 50% of those were in the last century. So there's a disconnect. Maybe you can relate to this. You hear a pastor or a friend say, hey, you need to invite your friends to church. You're a little nervous to do so. You don't know how to share the gospel. So you take them up on the offer. You bring your friend to church. Your friend comes to church and the pastor up at the pulpit, he says, I am so happy we have some visitors here with us today. So excited. I'm gonna tell you about this wonderful plan that God has for your life. But before we do so, we have some prayer requests. These prayer requests have come in, you know, Jose and Larry and Kevin, they all lost their jobs this week. Several families are experiencing financial difficulties. Susan lost her battle with cancer. Gabriella, she's in the hospital and the doctors are not sure what's going on with her. So let's pray for these dear saints. And then I wanna come back to you visitors and tell you, about this wonderful plan that God has for your life. You see, there's a disconnect. There's a problem. There's an issue. Not everything is what it seems to be. We need to be honest. And what's missing from the gospel presentation today is telling people to count the cost. Count the cost. They did it in the early church. They do it all throughout the world. You're going to see that in the 1040 window, unreached people groups. You're going to see that in Islamic areas. Count the cost. Because you are forfeiting everything. You are surrendering all. For the sake of Christ, I go. For the sake of Christ, I confess. I profess. And though nobody go with me, they would say, Still, I will follow. The Christian's life is full of red seas, fiery furnaces, and lion's dens. Can God heal a marriage? Yes, he does every day, all day, all the time. But to tell people that God will heal your marriage is not being honest. Scripture says, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption." We live in a fallen world, making fallen decisions. If I committed adultery on my wife, I'm at her mercy to forgive me. Christ, of course, will cleanse me. But this doesn't mean she has to put up with me. Does God heal marriages? All the time. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful on how we word that. We'll hear Christian parents say, I don't want my child to become a missionary in Africa. It's not safe. What if they die? My answer, then they die to the glory of God. You see, the safest place to be is the center of God's will. So whether that's in the heart of Compton, whether that's in the belly of a well, whether that's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fire, Every trial we will ever go through as a Christian, we know that Christ has already been there, and he will be there with us. We need to stop trying to build our kingdoms here on earth, because God's kingdom is not of this earth. And his warriors, his soldiers fight a spiritual battle that this world knows not of. Let's tell people to count the cost. 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, don't think it's a strange thing concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. 1 Peter 4.12, what am I going through? God, I've always served you faithfully. Why is this happening to me? Because your plans are not my plans and because perhaps you are faithfully serving him. Ever thought about that? <laughs> because God is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Ever thought about that? I mean, we like to underline certain scriptures like, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And that's a good text. And so we should. That keeps us from worrying about tomorrow and pacing back and forth today. But we must remember that God desires to seek and save that which is lost. Do you think it's comfortable to go into the remote parts of the earth and to leave in and out? Absolutely not. But people do. They go and they preach and they proclaim and they allow the cards to fall where they may. I'm reminded of the young missionaries who got on the boat to go preach the gospel to a remote people group. And as they look back at their friends and their family, they were heard saying, Worthy is the Lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. Worthy is the Lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And what lies before you is a stewardship from the owner. Scripture says, Riches profit not, but righteousness shall deliver a people. Here's a verse you can write down John 4. Verse 14, Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. It's a good text. John 6, 35. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. So the question that needs to be asked and answered is, what shall we be coming to Jesus hungering and thirsting for? Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they blessed are those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be full. That's what we hunger and thirst for. Why do we need to have righteousness? Because we're gonna face a holy God on judgment day. You know, when I talk to people out on the streets and I say, you know, if, if God is so kind, so benevolent, Maybe he's just going to allow me to get to heaven. I mean, he he kind of made me like this. And this is like blame, blaming the the toy manufacturer for a a defect toy. But in reality, it's not God's fault, right? Well, God knows my makeup. He knows what I'm prone to do. And when I sin, it's really his fault. Well, that didn't work with Adam and Eve, right? It's the woman you gave me, you know, Adam said. When we come to Christ, we have to come to Christ with the right motive, realizing that the only thing we have to offer God is our sin. That is it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Imagine if I were to grab a a match, and I light the match, and we have fire, and I grab a dried-out leaf, and I put the, the fire next to the leaf. What will the fire do to the leaf? Is it because the fire hates the leaf? No, that's silly, right? The nature of the fire is different than the nature of the leaf. And the fire must consume the leaf because their natures are opposed. And the Bible describes God, and I think it's Hebrews 12, 29, that God is a consuming fire. Anything less than the nature of God will be consumed in his presence, and this is why we need to have a right standing before God the Father. R.C. Sproul He said, The equation is simple. If God requires perfect righteousness and perfect holiness to survive his perfect judgment, then we're left with a serious problem. Either we rest our hope in our own righteousness, which is altogether inadequate, or we flee to another's righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness not our own inherently. And the only place such righteousness can be found is in Christ. That is the good news. You remember what the primary role of the Holy Spirit is in the life of the non-believer? In John 17, it tells us, to convict them of sin, judgment, and righteousness. So sometimes when we get into an apologetical sword fight, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit stands aloof, waiting for us to finish, and then get back to going through the law so he can convict them of sin. And then righteousness, you do not have the righteousness required of the law to stand before a holy God, therefore you will be judged. The Spirit, convicting of sin, judgment, and righteousness. This is why we go through the Ten Commandments. And the Holy Spirit does his work, convicts, sin, judgment, and righteousness. And we see this with the Apostle Paul in Acts 23, verse 24, where it says that he reasoned with Felix. Do you remember what Paul reasoned with Felix about? He didn't reason with him about, hey, God can give you a happier life if you come to him than in the life that you're currently in. I understand you're top of the heap. You've climbed to the top of the mountain. No. Paul reasoned with him concerning righteousness, judgment, and self-control. The sin in Felix's life that so easily beset him was self-control, whatever that means, whatever that looked like, and Paul drove that home. And it says that Felix trembled. He told him to leave him until it came a more appropriate time. Man, I have so much to share. J.C. Ryle said, to be born again is, as it were, to enter upon a new existence, to have a new mind and a new heart, new views and new principles, new tastes and new affections. New likings and new dislikings, new fears and new joys, new sorrows, new love to things once hated, and new hatred to things once loved. New thoughts of God and ourselves and the world and the life to come and salvation. You see, the message that we need to share with people is that you have to face a holy God. How are you going to do? And tonight, I'm going to share with you how to give a proper gospel presentation, what that looks like. I mean, the best gospel track is a Bible, because from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation twenty two twenty one, 21 we have a complete message about who God is, how we're created in the image of God, how we've fallen and we've rebelled against God, we chose to live our own way. And then there was the promise of a Messiah, and the Messiah would remove the sins of the world. And he would live a perfect life. This is where we get our righteousness from. We get our righteousness from the life of Christ, not the death of Christ. If we have time, we can get into that. It's so beautiful. Then we talk about salvific salvation, salvific grace and mercy and justice. We talk about the resurrection and the ascension. We'll talk about a warning for those who reject the message. That's tonight. It is the most important message that I will share on this trip. You don't want to miss that, but let me finish it off with this. It's called, Father, I Have a Problem, and it's written by Ray Comfort. Father, God, I have a problem, and it's weighing heavy on me, and it's all I can think about night and day. Before I bring it to you in prayer, I suppose I should pray for those who are less fortunate than me, those in this world who have hardly enough food for this day and for those who don't have a roof over their heads at night. I also pray for families who have lost loved ones in sudden death, for parents whose children have leukemia, for the many people who are dying of brain tumors, for the hundreds of thousands who are laid waste with other terrible cancers, and for people whose bodies have been suddenly shattered in car wrecks, for those who are lying in hospitals with agonizing burns over their bodies, whose faces have been burned beyond recognition, I pray for people with emphysema and whose eyes fill with terror as they struggle for every breath merely to live, for those who are tormented beyond words by irrational fears, for the elderly who are wracked with the pains of aging, whose only escape is death. I pray for people who are watching their loved ones fade before their eyes through the grief of Alzheimer's disease and for the many thousands who are suffering the agony of AIDS for those who are in such despair that they are contemplating suicide and for people who are tormented by the demons of alcoholism and drug addiction. I pray for people who have been abandoned by their parents, for those who are sexually abused, for wives held in quiet despair, beaten and abused by cruel, drunken husbands, for people whose minds have been destroyed by mental disorders and for those who have lost everything in floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, and earthquakes. I pray for the blind, Who never see the faces of the loved ones or the beauty of a sunrise, for those whose bodies are deformed in painful arthritis, for the many whose lives will be taken from them today by the murderers, for those wasting away on their deathbeds in hospitals. But most of all, I cry out for the millions, perhaps billions, who don't know the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. For those in a moment of time will be swept into hell by the cold hand of death and find to their utter horror the unspeakable vengeance of eternal fire. They will be eternally damned to everlasting punishment. Oh God, I pray for them. That's strange. I can't seem to remember what my problem was. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're all going to go through things in life. If you're a Christian, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, what awaits you are trials, tribulation, persecution, temptations, and sufferings. Oh, by the way, your name is written in heaven with an ink that cannot be erased. Run your race. Run with endurance. Don't give up. Don't let up. Don't shut up until you've prayed up and preached up for the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word it divides, it cuts, it heals, and it mends. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I'm reminded of the text. And in your faithfulness, you have afflicted me, O oh Lord. And because you have afflicted me, I've kept your way, one has said. God, We will go anywhere with you as long as it is forward. May you do what you need to do to receive the greatest reward and award due to your name. Thank you for these dear people. For those who have questions, God, I pray that they would be like the Bereans, not like those in Thessalonica, that they would study the scriptures and joyfully draw near to you with an open heart. Thank you for your word. That is what we need. Thank you for these dear people. Bring their families closer together and bring us back tonight for a message that will transform our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.